So now that lockdown restrictions are kind of in the initial stages of being eased a bit, um, though, you know, it won't be back to normal, whatever that, you know, might have been for you. It's going to be back to normal anytime soon or maybe really ever. Through all of this, we're given an opportunity. We're given a choice. Do we want to live as we did before or do we want to grow given the difficulty we've lived through? Because there's going to be the want to go back to how we were living before and all of its good parts and all of its bad parts just for some kind of semblance of comfort. But do we want to use lockdown restrictions as a way for us to grow? We can if, if we want to grow. The thing is, a lot of us, all of us probably, don't really want to grow. We need to ask God to do that. Um, but here, here's what can happen. We can emerge from this pandemic as people who have been transformed for the better. That is a real possibility. We can be people who've been transformed. We can live in this pandemic and any other kind of suffering or difficulty that we go through as transformed people. That, that's a reality for those who follow Jesus. In fact, that's living out your most authentic self, your most authentic reality. Now, this isn't something that can only be brought on by some kind of global catastrophe. Like, we don't need some kind of horrible outside element of suffering to come in in order to transform us, but it does give us unique opportunities. In fact, we're given unique opportunities every day uh, to be able to grow in this way. And this is exactly what Jesus does for those who follow him. For all of us who follow Jesus, this is what Jesus does. He transforms us. Jesus transforms us and continually transforms us. This reality of transformation is told through the experiences of a new church being planted in the city of Ephesus in our story today. And as you're listening to this, wherever you might be, whether you're in on the Zoom call with us or whether you're on Facebook or YouTube or our website or whatever, it doesn't matter um, if you don't know who he is or if you know a lot about him already because this story has a range of for, for everybody, whether you don't really know anything about Jesus, whether you know a little bit about him, but you don't, you're not really like a follower of Jesus yet, or if you're like a full-fledged follower of Jesus and you're all in, this story has, has a range of those kinds of people who get to it. And so I think its story is pertinent for, pertinent for all of us. And this is what we're going to look at today. Jesus, through his Holy Spirit, transforms people transforms communities, and gives us a new way to live. And that new way to live is, you guessed it, transformative. So there's a bit of a theme. Uh, in this story, we see that a conversion, uh, a community, and a sacrifice. We see how, God, how, how that works out. A conversion for an individual, a uh, community gets transformed, and then the way of living of transformation is the way of, of sacrifice. So let's start, though, at that first point, that Jesus transforms people. This is what you might have heard the word conversion used of before. And this section mostly comes from verses uh, chapter 18, verses uh, 24 through chapter 9, verse 7. We're mostly going to focus on those first seven verses of chapter 9. So if you have a Bible, um, you can have one up in a, in a tab or you know, search for it. Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 7 for this particular point. And what we see is individual people being baptized in the Spirit, being baptized in the Holy Spirit. A person, a group of these persons, are actually being transformed from one way of life to another. A word that we often hear out in the general world is conversion. That's what it means to, to convert this way to this way. It's a complete different way of being because it's a complete different being. Now, there was the beginning of a church in this city, Ephesus. And people hear about Jesus a bit. 
in this in this city, uh, but they don't really get it yet. They know about him. They've heard some teaching about him through this guy Apollos, um, but they're not really sure kind of about all the stuff about Jesus. Uh, they don't really know him, not yet anyway. And maybe that's where some of you are. Maybe some of you know about Jesus, like you know the Wikipedia facts. Um, you might have some information on who he is. You might even be interested in learning more, but you can't really say you know him, not yet anyway. You're still in that investigative kind of phase. Now, Paul asks these people who know about Jesus, he asks them about their faith, specifically about the Holy Spirit and their baptism. Now, that might seem like a weird thing. That's not the first question maybe you ask somebody, and we'll get to why that is so important in a moment. But they say they haven't experienced the Holy Spirit. In fact, they probably didn't really know who the Holy Spirit even was at this point. And they hadn't yet been baptized into Jesus. They had a baptism, but it wasn't Christian baptism as we know. It was a preparatory kind of baptism, the one that John the Baptist taught. So this baptism, uh, John the Baptist's baptism, wasn't the real thing, wasn't the real deal. It was a preparation for the real deal. And And that's what John the Baptist taught. So Paul told them about this real thing, this real deal, about Jesus, and about getting baptized into Jesus' name. So they get baptized, Paul lays hands on them, and immediately they get the gift of the Holy Spirit. Kind of an amazing story. But let's talk about what's going on here, because it could seem kind of weird, um, and it's not always easy to understand, because the stories are just being told as these stories are. First, let's talk about baptism. What's the deal? Like, why, why is that such a big deal? Why is Paul so concerned about it? Because if Paul's concerned about it, like maybe we should be too. Well, baptism is a symbol of an identity. It's the symbol of an identity. It's not the identity itself, but it symbolizes who we are. It tells us and others who we are and what, what family we're a part of. The act of baptism is a rite of passage into this family. That's what baptism is, a public kind of rite. It's an outward sign of an inward reality. Something, it, it's a sign of something out there that's already happened inside. If Jesus has transformed you, Jesus has told us that we are to be baptized. That's how Jesus taught when he was on earth. Because Jesus gives us a new identity, one that identifies with him as king and with his kingdom as our life orientation. This changes our past because we're forgiven. This changes our future because we have a hope that's set on Jesus and his king and uh, him being king over his kingdom. And it actually changes us in the present because our desires are now changed to live in a different kind of way. And we get to enjoy different kinds of things at, at a higher level. Now, that's all going on inside of our hearts, inside like an internal thing, the core of our being. This transformation is supposed to be followed by an outward sign, by baptism. That's what baptism is all about. Now, because baptism is a sign, it's not the thing itself. There is nothing mystical or powerful in baptism itself. It's this spiritual reality that baptism points to that's powerful. I hope that makes sense. And the reality for all of us who have been baptized, the reality is that you're saying in that is this, Jesus has transformed me. And because of that, he continues on that transformation process. So when Paul talks to these people who are interested in Jesus, he assumes they've been baptized in Jesus's name, but they haven't. And they don't really know Jesus yet. And so they weren't. They don't know the Holy Spirit yet. And so when John says, John, when Paul says, John the Baptist prepared us to believe in Jesus, he's, he's telling them about like what baptism is all about. They immediately want the real thing. Once they find out that the baptism they had, that wasn't, you know, a baptism in Jesus' name, that was John the Baptist kind of baptism, 
that there was being prepared for the real thing and they could have the real thing, they, they jump to it. They, they run to it immediately. They get baptized in Jesus' name. Paul placed his hands on them. And, when, and then what often accompanies the sign of receiving the Holy Spirit in Acts is boldness. Boldness in speech especially. So they start praying in tongues. They start prophesying. This is often how we see Acts worked out and what the sign of the Holy Spirit looks like in that book. So these people had to be told about Jesus. They couldn't just believe on their own and just come come to their own. They had to be told about the Spirit. Once they were and they believed, they were baptized. It was a very kind of simple, basic process. And then the Spirit came upon them as it does for all who believe. Now, what we often see in Acts is a crossover between the old way and the new way, what theologians call redemptive history. Now, I love a good Venn diagram, and so here's one to illustrate this. In the old way, this is where uh, these 12 men are without hearing about Jesus or without hearing about um, the Spirit, or maybe they know about Jesus but don't really know Jesus. And so um, they're kind of living in this old way, the, the, the way the Old Testament tells them to live. Now, when Jesus comes, there is a new way. And he says that often in the way that he, in, in the words that he used in his ministry. It's not completely different than the old way, though. There's an overlap. If if John's baptism and ministry, John the Baptist, if his baptism and his ministry was preparation, as he said it was, Jesus is all about fulfillment. If John is about preparation, Jesus is all about fulfillment. And the old way is a shadow of the things to come. What we see in Acts is the crossover between the old and the new. People people were found in between, that crossover. Religious Jewish people who were living out of the Old Testament are learning about Jesus but not really knowing him. And so that old way is the seed, the new way is the tree. This in-between section here in Acts is where we see the seed still present with the sprout. And so we see this kind of overlap, this fuzzy overlap. Now, why does this matter to us? Why am I talking about this? Uh, am I just kind of, you know, because I can go to theological nerdery, should I? Like, what, what's the point? Well, knowing where we come from tells us who we are. And it's really important for us to know where we've come from. It stops us from being spoiled rich kids. Like, just, you know, it stops us from taking things for granted. Now, in our time that we live now, there is no crossover anymore. We're living in the new way completely. There is no crossover. The only baptism is Jesus' baptism. The time we live in now is the time that the entire rest of the Bible looked forward to. Like, all the prophets didn't quite even understand what they were uh, prophesying about. It's like, there's going to be a time in the future where you know we're going to be able to know Jesus in a new kind of way. This is the time that we are living in now. And we should not take that for granted. We get to be baptized into Jesus' name. That's not something that's happened out of, for all previous redemptive history. This is an amazing kind of thing. And this is more than just a rite of passage. It is a rite of passage, baptism, but it's more than just that. It's more than something you do because of where you were born or the family you were born into. Baptism is a symbol of our innermost reality. It is who we are. If you've been baptized... You've been baptized into the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. That name is, is, is now baptized. You're, you're into that name, just as Jesus has commanded us to do. 
That means our primary allegiance, our primary identity is to the Father, is to the Spirit, is to the Son. Our desires are aligned with the Father, with the Spirit, with the Son. Our lives are organized with the Father, with the Spirit, with the Son. And every part of us that isn't that way, every part of us that's out of alignment with that, isn't really who we are. If we follow Jesus, every part of us that doesn't follow Jesus, it's not really flowing out of our true identity and of actually who we are. It's living outside of our baptism is inauthentic, it's fake, it's false. It's not who we are. And every time you read a little bit more of your Bible, every time you speak to God in prayer, every time you serve others in your church, outside of the church, you are living out of your true identity. That's who you are. That's who you were made to be. That's who you were recreated to be. Now, if you've been listening to this, and maybe you've been around the church for a bit, uh, maybe uh, you've been part of Redeemer and Jesus has transformed you and haven't yet been baptized. I would love to talk to you more about that. If you follow Jesus and one way he has told us to do that is to be baptized into his name. It's a part of obediently following Jesus. So following Jesus and not getting baptized, again, is part of that part of us that needs to be realigned. It's not really following Jesus. Now, baptism is a symbol of dying with Jesus under the water and rising with him, being taken up out of the water. It's a beautiful kind of picture. It's not something we do to get points with God. It's a surrender to the love that God has already given us through the life of Jesus. That's what baptism is. That's what it's about. And if you've been transformed by Jesus, if you have been baptized, that is who you are. People who are part of Redeemer, that is who you are. Your life is the one that has come up out of the water, a symbol of Jesus' resurrection. That's your primary identity. You may not always feel like that. You probably don't always feel like that. But the reality is, is that's the truth. Your primary identity is one of being united to Jesus in his resurrection. Nothing you can do will ever erode that. Jesus has changed you, so it's all in Jesus' court. And he has you in his hands. When you're having a good day, when you're having a bad day, when you're an extra caring mom or a horrible yelling father, when you slack off at work and when you put in that extra time that nobody sees, your primary identity is one with the resurrected Lord. Baptism tells us who we are. Our baptism also tells us how we are to live. We are new creations. New creations don't live in the old creation kind of way. We're transformed by Jesus. We don't try and malform ourselves and, and live in some other kind of way. We don't serve anything else, anyone else but God alone. So we have 12 people who are baptized here. And these 12 live out their baptism, which leads to a new community. So Jesus transforms individuals, transforms people. Jesus also transforms communities. And this is what we see in verses 8 through 12. We see the story of a church being planted in Ephesus. It's a lot like us here, Redeemer, a story of a church being planted. We get to live into this story as we, as we find ourselves there. So Jesus' transformation never stops at the individual level. It's never just with me. It always continues. It always goes out. It goes from individual to church to wider community. That's what we see all the time in Acts. And that's what we see actually in this story. We've had the individuals. Now we're in the church. We're going to see how that affects the community in a moment. And that means all that God has given you in your life isn't meant to stop with you. You are God has given you actually too much for you. So you don't need to hoard it. And let's not waste it. Let's use it in the way that God's called us to. He's given us channels. It's supposed to be for others. So let's look here. So Paul um, spent some time in the synagogue. 
and the synagogue. Uh, people didn't really like that, and so he left, and he spent a lot more time in a public lecture hall. Uh, what was he doing there? Well, the same thing we see over and over and over. We see words and actions, words and actions. This is the story of Jesus's life and ministry. This is the story of Acts as we uh, model ourselves after Jesus's life and ministry. And what we see here are God's words plus God's power equals transformed lives. God's words plus God's power equals transformed lives. Now, God used extraordinary miracles through Paul. Not just miracles, it says, extraordinary miracles. That's, you know... That's another level. Miracle is, is good enough. Extraordinary, that's something else. Pieces of cloth that Paul had touched would heal others. That's crazy. That's like what happened with Jesus when Jesus is on the earth. This is Jesus working through Paul in some kind of crazy ways. Now, we may not always be able to be part of miracles like this, um, though we should pray for them. We shouldn't act as if they don't exist because they really do. And maybe we, the reason why we don't see it as much is we don't pray for them as much. But even if we can, uh, even if a piece of cloth that I touch doesn't heal somebody, um, we should always be working with the expectation that God is going to work. We don't need to have miracles. We don't need to have extraordinary miracles. Yes, we should pray for them. But in our normal everyday actions, we should expect that God is going to work his power through them. And all we do, we should be expecting God's power to work. In the small things that we do, for friends, for neighbors, um, we should be expecting God's power to work. We should be praying for this. Just a small little thing of inviting someone over or giving something, somebody something or doing groceries for somebody. Let's, let's ask the Spirit to work in ways beyond our human powers and, and work in the way that He does through His supernatural power. So there's actions, extraordinary actions, um, and there's also words. Because Paul doesn't just act, he's using a lot of words here. He's reasoning with them often, and this is like you know years here. Paul, like Jesus, never just used words. He never just used actions. The two are connected. I think for our church, probably the more difficult thing for us, I know the more difficult thing for me, is how to use our words in a way that feels authentic, that doesn't feel weird and, and cr- like churchy, cringy kind of thing, um, in a way that loves others well, because we do want to love others well. We want to have words that love others well. We just, like, sometimes are just not really sure how to do that. And we also really want to communicate what we believe. We would love for more people to come to faith. But this is really hard to do, Right. And so like that, like all swirls around and basically we just kind of like, I'm just not going to say anything because I'll probably mess it up. We're more afraid of being wrong than, you know, afraid of, of other people missing out. But if it starts with us, we will never be good enough. God is not demanding a perfect explanation, presentation of the gospel. God is demanding our obedience in following through and using our words. So we don't have to be perfect. We won't be perfect. Don't expect to be perfect. Because perfection, you know, never inspires anyone to do anything. If we start with God, we can trust that he will be good enough. Let's not start with us. Let's start with God. We can trust that he's going to be good enough. If Jesus has transformed us, he will transform our desires. And we will want to speak. Maybe you're sitting listening to this and be like, I really don't even want to do any of that. You need to pray about that. We all probably need to pray about that. How many of us have 100% pure desire for everyone to know about Jesus? Nobody. Like, we all need to be praying about that. And as we do, we will want to do things that point to Jesus. We will see maybe how those everyday actions can be used for Jesus' good. And we'll be given those opportunities to say those small little things to talk about Jesus. And this is a heart that comes out of living out of our baptism, out of who we are, in the Father, and the Spirit, and the Son. 
comes a love for others. So this transformation allows us to start with God, not with others, or, and not with ourselves. And that frees us from anxiety, that frees us from fear, and that moves us towards patience. Now, real patience comes from the security of God being in control and depending on Him, on His timeline. This is really difficult. If you're like me at all, you know, your timeline is like everything must be compressed and must quicker, quicker, faster, faster. That, that's a lot like me. Maybe you're not like that. Maybe the other side of like, you know, a bit too lazy and blase about it all. I'm more of like, let's, let's do this thing. And here, here, there's, there's a fake patience that can come here, I think. A fake patience is complacency is giving up, but it's kind of using the right words to pretend like you haven't. It's, it's a loss of fervor. It's finding the easy way out. Real patience is, 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 is an act of wrestling. It's difficult. Real patience is difficult. The process itself is difficult. Waiting is hard. I mean, we have our phones all the time. Who needs to wait in a queue for anything? Like, I'm not going to wait and be bored. I got my phone. But the burden of something working out the way that we want to or not, that burden is not on us. And that's how we can be patient. So even though it's difficult to wait, people who are patient, even though that's difficult, people who are patient do have a lighter bearing because they know it's not dependent on us, dependent on God. And that doesn't call us to not work. That fact calls us to work all the more. Now, this is a product of Jesus's transformation. We can't do this ourselves. A product of Jesus's transformation without speaking to Jesus in prayer, without reading his words that he has to us, we are going to miss being able to live this way. And in fact, you'll just find Christianity as frustrating, annoying, and like full of anxiety. But if we rely more on Jesus, which means going to him, means we have to pray, we have to read the Bible. It's a very basic aspect of Christianity. We can live in a different kind of way, a way that Jesus has called us to. We can live out our baptism in that kind of transformative way. And a group of people together following Jesus transforms people. Being part of Redeemer, being part of your missional community, being involved in other people's lives, all the, all the relationships God's called in our lives, this will continue to transform you and mold you into Jesus's image. That's how he set things up. Living this way is really good for us, but living in this way also transforms others transforms others. I don't think anyone wants Redeemer to just be a small little enclave just for itself, for the people who are part of it now. We would love to be able to serve others, to bless others, to, for others to see how much Jesus loves them. And if you have a community of people baptized in the Spirit, we live in a way that's different to those who aren't baptized in the Spirit. This is how it is. And we've been given a new way to live. And that's this next section. Jesus transforms us, giving us a new way to live. And that's this next section. Jesus transforms us and gives us a new way to live. This new way of living is a lot about sacrifice. Let's delve into this a bit. This new way, uh, of course, I had to use the word transformative. It is, of course, it's transformative. And this comes from verses 13 through 20 in chapter 19. So the, the last little part of our story here. This new church of Ephesus in action is what, what we get to see. Uh, it's not all good. It's not all pretty. And let, let's see what's going on here. Um, again, there are people here at Ephesus who know about Jesus, but don't really know him. And this continues as that church is planted. There are people who know about Jesus, people who know about even serving Jesus and doing ministry, but they don't really know Jesus. And that's a quite a big distinction. Some of these people are leading a ministry of casting out demons. It probably looks like miraculous. Um, this leads to serious consequences, though, in not knowing Jesus. 
serious consequences in the spiritual and the physical world. And it turns out, eventually, if you don't know God, you won't be able to serve him anyway. You'll get run out. Now, these people are trying to work for someone that they don't know. They know the words, maybe, um, but they don't know the one who gave the words. They're focused on competence at the expense of their character. Now, let me just say, maybe your first response to this is like a story about demons. This sounds like kind of far-fetched. Is this just something that people who lived a long time ago believe in because they were kind of dumb and they didn't know about science? Spiritual world? I don't really know about that. Um, well, most of us in the Western world, we don't really believe in the spiritual world. I think including Christians, at least we don't act like the spiritual world really exists. Uh, we think that all that this world has to offer is what we can see with our eyes. And so we have a very kind of narrow definition of reality. But for most of the world, that isn't as materialistic as the West. They totally get and assume the existence of a spiritual world. Uh, this is an area where we, who often pride ourselves on knowledge, are actually far behind the majority of the world, uh, in, in, especially behind other cultures and other places of the world. Our day-to-day -day experience, okay, it's not, maybe it's not going to look like the story here, and maybe that's a good thing, but that doesn't mean there isn't a spiritual world that's just as real as the physical world. Okay, it just looks a little different. And this spiritual world, just like the physical world, responds to Jesus. Doesn't respond to humans, responds to Jesus. And Jesus has given power to those who know him. Paul didn't do miracles. God did miracles through Paul. We don't have power to do much. Jesus is the one who gives us power to do things that he wants to do. So these demons, they're being cast out, but eventually they catch on. They're like, oh, whoa, whoa, hey, hang on a second. We know Jesus. We know Paul. Who are you? Like, they don't know him. Uh, they don't know these, these people. And they realize that the people who are trying to do the work don't actually have the authority that they think they have. Because the authority is derivative. It does not come from us. It derives from Jesus. They're trying to do God's work without knowing God. They get beat up and they get ran out. News of this gets out of this kind of, what, what a uh, kind of catastrophe. Oh no, the church is leading a ministry and actually like the people who are leading it are like false leaders. Um, people now though have a newfound respect for Jesus because what people learn through this is how important it is to have Jesus on your side. How, how, how much power comes through the name of Jesus, not through ourselves. If you don't know Jesus, you get beat up by demons. So people are like, maybe we should, uh, you know, have a bit more reverence for this Jesus guy. This leads to an unlikely outcome. What could have been like maybe like the end of the church at Ephesus. Like, that's it. It's horrible. Kind of, you know, it's on all the Facebook pages and the news, like, you know, fake church. Well, there were people who believed in Jesus during all this that didn't make that belief public before. Now they make it public because of all this. Sorcerers, people who, whose livelihood came up from working in this, in, in this spiritual world, gave up their livelihood, gave up their jobs, burned their scrolls. Now, I mean, there's no going back after that. You know, you, you burn that bridge, it's gone. This was a costly sacrifice. This is how much, how much money that would be in our day. It would be about four million pounds burned. How long did it take to burn four million pounds worth of scrolls? Sacrifice is costly. Sacrifice is costly. Now, what do we make of all this? This is a very strange story. What, what do we make of this? I don't know any um, sorcerers with scrolls. I do know a couple people who wouldn't maybe call themselves sorcerers, but you know, kind of similar um, livelihood. 
I think what this shows is that serving without knowing Jesus is highly problematic. Serving Jesus without knowing him is highly problematic. And it's obviously bad for you. I mean, you can get beat up, but really, like you're fooling yourself. You're living a lie. Trying to be something that you're not is bad for you, but it's also bad for other people because other people who had real faith were not coming into the public because they saw these other people with inauthentic faith out there as leaders. That's a, that's a big thing. They saw people who were faking the Christian thing. And when those people were removed and revealed for who they were, there was space to be made for real authentic faith to move forward and real costly sacrifice to happen. I find that really interesting. They, they were, these people who were able to make, they felt like now they were able to make their authentic faith public when they saw the church kind of being honest with where they were. You have these fakers. They don't have any faith. They're good on performance metrics. You know, they can cast out demons until it's made obvious that, that, you know, they're faking it all along. But this led to people who really did have some real faith to begin with. It allowed them to come forward and publicly declare what they believed. Now, this section teaches us the perils of competence without character. Competence without character. Knowing how to do stuff without the depth to back it up. This is never a good thing. Never a good thing. It never goes well. Serving in ministry and not really knowing Jesus. Spending more time doing stuff for God instead of being with God. That's a problem. Now, this is true for people who work in the church, like myself. And this is something, a, a rebuke for every pastor, for every minister, for everyone who gets paid by the church to work. This is a rebuke to them. Don't let your competence move past your character. But this is more than just a message for, for me. Like, this is a message for all of us. To not let your competence move past your character. May your competence never develop quicker or more deeply or more or, or mature more than your character. That's a blessing. Character is developed by being with Jesus. That's the only way we get the character that we want. Being with Jesus. Not doing stuff for Jesus. Being with Jesus. With his people. With, with Redeemer, if you're not with his people, which I know that's weird now, it means WhatsApp messages, it means calling people, whatever. If you're not with his people, you're missing out on developing your character. If you are not praying to God every day, you're missing out on letting your character being transformed by God. If you're not reading the Bible every day and taking it seriously for, and seeing how it matters in your life and trying to change your life because of it, you're missing out on how God is, is, changes your character. You're going to miss out on that. And your competence eventually will get better because it's much easier to, to learn how to do stuff than it is to grow in our, in our kind of maturity in Jesus. And eventually your competence will go forward than your character and then you're in a real problem there because you can fake it. It's easy to fake it in the church. This is how character is developed though, being with Jesus, with his people, with the word, and with prayer. Again, it's not it's not hard. It's not really hard stuff. If you've noticed, almost all the applications we have in Acts, this is the hardest stuff we see. Church, like plant is be, church is being planted in Acts. Almost all the applications are, if people would read the Bible and pray and interact with other people in their church, that would transform our church and transform others. It is so easy and basic. It's not a question of, of difficulty. It's a question of desire and motivation and where we're gonna where we place uh, place our treasure. But this is a slow process, and often we don't see that pro process of, of character growth in each other or in ourselves. It requires patience. Remember, this is God's timing, not ours. 
Now, competence is developed by learning how to do things and, and how to do them better. Both are needed for sure. It's not like we shouldn't have competent people. We want people who lead missional communities to be competent in leading missional communities. People who lead music on Sundays will be competent musicians. People who preach, hopefully, will be competent preacher, like all the, like the leadership positions in the church, as well as in other areas of, of our world, should, those people should be competent. But more important than that, or at least what should not be missed, is to have good people leading. So bad people can be competent, but good people are leaders. And that's what we want to see happen in the church, as well as in all the other areas of our life. The only way for you to be that person is to value character over competence, is to be with Jesus. That's the only way that's going to happen. So the time you spend in the Bible each day, praying, and where nobody sees you and you can't tweet out that like amazing revelation, that's more important than any ministry you lead, than any job, career thing you're involved in, than any kind of um, view that your friends might have of you, than, than anything else. The same applies in all other areas of your life. You want to be a good dad? Be with Jesus. You want to lead in the workplace? Be with Jesus. There is no hope to be any of those things for you unless you are with Jesus. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means to live out our baptism. So let's be with Jesus. The last thing I'd like for us to look at is this. These sorcerers traded in their scrolls they gave up their livelihoods. They gave up their jobs. Now, this is a radical realignment for these sorcerers. Jesus transformed individual people. This transformed a community of people, a church. And this transformed the city. People are, are, are coming from like the most darkest places of this city and coming to faith in Jesus. It's amazing. People who get paid to cast spells burn their spell books. This is what happens when Jesus transforms people. These former sorcerers found something better than their careers to follow. And when that something better required them to sacrifice their career, their livelihood, they did it. But now, how are they going to eat? How are they going to provide for their families? Now the challenge is for the church to truly be the family that they say they are. For the church as a whole to sacrifice so that these other people can can keep going. If we want people to dramatically change their lives, our lives as the church must make space for them. That requires sacrifice. It must, and, and sometimes, you know, sacrificing and not seeing anything come from it. It requires us to be generous and take them in as if they were a brother or a sister, because of course they are. So if we want people to come to know Jesus from difficult backgrounds, which I hope you do. I do. I pray for it. Although I'm scared because it's difficult to do, right? And it's going to require me to depend more on Jesus. And I'm scared of that. If we want people who are homeless to come to faith, how are we going to be the church for them? If we want people who need financial help or people who are in dire need of relational help, those things, you know, financial help is a lot easier than relational help. You can just give money. The other side is you have to give your time, you have to give your effort, you have to give your, your, your relationships. If we want people with LGBTQ plus backgrounds to come to know how much Jesus loves them, that's going to require us as the church to really be the family for them. They've been ostracized by many people in their experiences. How are we going to be a family to people from difficult backgrounds? How are you a family now? If you are not living as a good family member now, 
then we should not expect anything more to happen. In fact, it might be better because if someone comes from a more difficult background and we're not equipped to be able to love them with the kind of love they need and they require, it could be perilous for them. So the challenge for us now is to be that kind of family to the people who we have now, who has relational needs. Don't wait for someone to come talk to you. Don't complain about nobody talking to you. You have to go and sacrifice first for them. If everyone did that, then no one would actually you know, have a problem. Just imagine if we did more of this, if we lived more in this kind of sacrificial way. Imagine if we trusted Jesus more. How would our lives change? Our missional communities would be less event-driven and more relational. Like missional communities would really be something that would happen throughout the week. And they, it's not that they don't now, but we can surely we can get better at that, can't we? We'd be in each other's lives more often. And when we didn't see somebody, uh, we would ask them, oh, where were you? Missed you? All those kind of things. We would have to sacrifice more because we would learn more about needs as we grow closer together. Also, we'll have to ask for forgiveness more because as we grow closer together, we will rub up against each other and have more friction. And this is what it means to be a family, at least a functional family. A lot of us, myself included, uh, growing up had a lot of experience of what dysfunctional family is like. And not that our church is going to be perfect, but we're trying to live the way that Jesus has called us to. So let's wrap this up. Let's wrap this all up, right? Okay, what are some of the main points? If you are on the outside looking in, you don't know Jesus yet, you're learning about him, but still don't know Jesus for yourself yet. If that's you, you are at point one, the first point that we got. Through his love, Jesus will transform your life. Do you want to follow him? You can, and Jesus will transform you in order to do so. If you want more information on that, you can go to redeemermcr.com slash live. There's a button there that says sign up. You get emails from us. You can reply to any of those emails. If you already get those emails and you want to you know, take another next small step on what that might look like for you, um, just reply to any of those emails and we'll be in touch about how we can help you grow in your walk with Jesus. If you do know Jesus, but aren't yet connected to his community, a church, a church where people know you and you know them, not just a church where you watch a video, but people know you and you know them, uh, you're at point two. Following Jesus means being part of his family, imperfect as it is, being part of his family on earth. We would love for you to join Redeemer and see what it could be like to be part of this transformative community. If you don't get our emails, again, you can go to RedeemerMCR.com slash live. There's a sign-up button, and you can send, submit your email, and you get updates on, on how to be more part of our community. Uh, and if you do get our emails, let us know how we can help you be a good family, um, uh, how we can be a good family to you. So it might be joining a missional community. It might be reading the Bible with somebody or praying with somebody. Let us know. We, we really actually do really want to be a part of, of your life. Uh, the next two are for those who are part of Redeemer. So you're watching this, you're part of our church. If you serve in any capacity here at Redeemer, and most of you actually do, it's amazing. You, you, you guys are amazing. But here, here's the thing. Don't let your competence get ahead of your character. Don't let your competence get ahead of your character. And that doesn't mean to like dial down serving. It just means to dial up what it means to be a disciple. If you need help sorting out what that next step is, if you feel like, ah, I feel like I'm a little bit like that, um, I would love to help walk with you through that. I don't have all the answers, but we can go to Jesus together and we can work something up in order to, to, to do that. Get in touch with me or, or get in touch with someone else who knows you well. Maybe you're in a core group with somebody or someone in your missional community, um, but you need to talk to somebody about that. And 
actually all of us need to talk to somebody about that to keep praying that that wouldn't happen to make sure we were being with Jesus more than we're serving him now for all of us who are part of redeemer whether you're serving or not let's have a think about what sacrifice is about there's something in your life i know this is true cuz it's true for me true for everybody there's something probably some things in your life that you're holding on to something that feels like it's worth a lot I can just like it, you you love that thing but that very thing that you're holding on to is also what's holding you back from growing more in your faith holding you back from knowing Jesus more now we all have these things all of us and we all need to sacrifice them every single day that's what it means to to um to carry our cross now what is it that you're holding on to that you need to burn like these sorcerers with their scrolls you need to burn that thing. Not just sort of let it go. You need to incinerate it completely because it's holding you back from being who Jesus has really recreated you to be. It's something costly because sacrifice um, that isn't costly isn't sacrifice. So we know it's worth a lot. We know there's a lot of power there. Um, it's, it's, it's costly, but it's even better to sacrifice it. It's because that thing is not worth as much as knowing Jesus. It's not worth as much as walking in his ways. It's difficult to sacrifice, but in the end, we get so much more from Jesus. So whatever that thing is, talk to somebody about that thing, because you can't handle it yourself. You can talk to me. You can talk to someone else in Redeemer. You cannot handle it by yourself. Don't go through this world in the dark. And in verse 20, at the end of the story, it says that the word of Jesus spread widely and grew in power. You know what didn't spread widely and grow in power? The sorcerer's power, the sorcerer's scroll books. That thing, it was burned. It was put to rest. So however powerful that thing is that you're holding on to, Jesus is more powerful. He can overcome all things. And he will do that through his church. It's what he does. And that's the story here in our church. And that's the story in Acts. And as I've been talking, you know what that thing is. And you're trying to maybe even like repress it. Be like, no, no, God, God, please don't know. Whatever that thing is, God's, God knows what it is better than you do. And maybe other people know, maybe not. But please, be. we can all, in that thing, because we're scared of it, we can all grow in a little bit more honesty with others and a little bit more dependence on Jesus with that. So bring it to someone, bring it to him as well. How can you set these things on fire? Is it supposed to be in public? Not everything has to be set fire in public. Is it It's going to be in community in some way, though, even if it's just one person? Because there's no way out on your own. Because eventually, this is what, you'll, you'll make a, a vow to yourself, I won't do that, but then eventually you're going to scramble to pick up those pieces, and who's going to help you when that happens? But only if we have a community like the one at Ephesus, that's going to allow people like sorcerers to be a part of, of their family, only if we have that kind of community will we be able to set our scrolls on fire and not be driven back to the ashes. We have to be the family now to the people who are part of our church now. Redeemer, we're not perfect. I know that. I'm not perfect. You all know that more, probably even more than I do. But I know that we can handle whatever that you're in because it's not us at work. It's the Holy Spirit at work in our lives through our church. It's Jesus through his Holy Spirit at work in our church. The story of Acts is our story. That's the difference between just a community and the family of God. What we get to live in is the family of God, not just kind of like a community where we show up and watch a video once a week. We get to be part of the family of God. It's only through Jesus' costly sacrifice that we can live this way at all. 
Jesus is perfect. He's God himself, and he gave himself for us. Did we deserve it? Not even close. We didn't even come close to deserving it. And yet he generously gave himself to us. We were dead. We gave his, we, we got his life. He transforms us to be fully alive. And this is what baptism represents. This is what the Christian life is all about. So let your baptism be your identity, not your cash, not your class, not your schooling, not your intellect, not your friends, your baptism. One by Christ, kept by Christ. And let's be like the church at Ephesus in this way, for our good and for others' good in Manchester as in heaven. Let me pray.